BXE is an easy-to-use cryptocurrency exchange. Get verified in minutes. Buy and sell popular cryptocurrencies on a safe, compliant, insured U.S. exchange. Enjoy everything you need in one place. A two-way ramp for major currencies, credit and debit card support, an industry-leading API, responsive customer support, and a five-star mobile app. Love your primary cryptocurrency exchange? If not, make the switch to Beeksy today. Visit Beeksy by clicking the link in the description. Hi, folks. I'm the Shitcoin Sherpa, and I'm here with my guest, Big Frizzy, to talk about uh, early exchanges, BitE, Mountain Gox, of course, and uh, Alexander Vinnick, who you probably haven't heard of. How are you doing tonight, Frizzy? I'm doing pretty good. You can follow me at Airy Orange because, you know, you want to buy my NFTs. Um, <laughs> I have never, sorry, I had to show myself there for a second. Oh, you got I've to. Never, I've never heard of that Alex dude. No, I don't think most people have. And he's going to really come into play towards the end of the story, but it's uh, kind of interesting how he ties in. I think most people have heard about Mount Gox and you know, even if you're not around in the early days, then you've at least got like a periphery awareness of that whole scandal. Oh, for sure. I mean, so at one point, that was pretty much the only uh, Bitcoin exchange. And then you got uh, Roger who vouched for him and tarnished his reputation forever, forever. Yeah, it hasn't really come back, has it? Not in my opinion, but, you know, big blocks, big blocks. <laughs> Gotta love the big ones. All right, so I'm gonna just dive right into this. I've done a lot of research, but I mean, I could do an episode just on the fuck ups that Mount Gox made personally. And this goes a little bit uh, more broad with it, so I'll try to I'll try to blaze through it as best I can. Maybe at least a decent clip. Uh, so in the beginning, Bitcoin was of course peer to peer only. That was the only option. And as you can imagine, it was kind of hard to determine a price because there weren't any actual markets. So this Bitcoin talk user, uh, New Liberty Standard, established one of the first pricing models and basically became the first exchange, but not really how we would think of it. Um, They had a formula for figuring out what the current price of Bitcoin should be, according to them, and uh, offered to buy and sell from users on PayPal. So you had the obvious worry about chargebacks and uh, it functioned well enough to kind of set a baseline for Bitcoin price. Yeah, and for sure. In the, in the, in the early days, I, I think most people are pretty honest or at least uh, trying to live the, the ethics that uh, we've all learned and seen pooped on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I read a lot about people using PayPal in the early days and while there were a couple of cases of people doing chargebacks, it wasn't that common. So um, I think uh, New Liberty Standard actually gave, you know, their uh, history with PayPal and chargebacks at one point and said, you know, it was really just a small percentage of uh, their overall, how much they had done. But anyway, so... It also kind of helps establish the idea that Bitcoin's price should follow the cost of mining. And the exchange rate they had was calculated calculated by dividing 
a dollar by the average amount of electricity required to run a computer with high CPU for a year, 1331.5 kilowatt hours, multiplied by the average residential cost of electricity in the US for the previous year, which was like 11 cents at the time, uh, divided by 12 months, divided by the number of Bitcoins generated by New Liberty Standards Computer over the preceding 30 days. You know, it loosely followed um, the electric cost of a miner, sort of, kind of. Oh, as best you could. I mean, imagine back then when you could mine on a halfway decent computer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're just talking about a normal computer with a decent CPU. Um, and you could actually, you know, pump some out. And so the idea of buying Bitcoins was kind of weird to some of the folks on Bitcoin talk, at least back then. But uh, so the earliest exchange rate that they listed on their archive site shows Bitcoin exchanging for $1 for a 1,309 Bitcoins on <laughs> October 5th, 2009. I am game at that price. Uh, so For sure. God, For sure. It, and I mean, it came and went with them because you saw that go down, you know, just over the course of about two months. Uh, it's really cool how they had, you know, his day-by-day -day price listed for Bitcoin and everything. And at one point, a dollar only bought about 900. So it really kind of changed uh, dramatically so, even then. So would he just list the price on Bitcoin Talk like uh, once a day? They had a site, and so that was linked uh, in their profile, I believe. Okay. And so, you know, if anybody wanted to uh, buy or sell Bitcoin, they would just go there and see what the day's price was and, you know, shoot them an email. Simpler but, you know, times, simpler times. It'd be yeah. nice to have one price per day. Per day. <laughs> I know, right? Um, and it's crazy uh, just thinking that one user is providing all of the cash liquidity for Bitcoin at that point, kind of. Right. Um, I mean, I'm sure other people were doing peer-to-peer uh, -peer trades, but you can't really figure out a price um, without any publicly available data, I don't think. Not without guessing, that's for sure. No, yeah, I mean, you're just guessing otherwise. Uh, so on January 15th, 2010, the first actual exchange was proposed by a user by the name of uh, DW Dollar. And to give you an idea of how basic this was, the first location listed for this exchange was just their IP address. Um, you can still go back and you've got right there, you know, the, the original owner's uh, IP address just all over Bitcoin Talk. And that's, that's where you went to get it. It was very basic and they ran on uh, testnet and everything at first and encouraged people to you know, come on there and try everything using fake Bitcoin and fake dollars. But uh, it was the first time that you had had an exchange, a real actual exchange. Let's see how it spirals out of control from there. Oh, yeah, because they <laughs> always do, don't they? Well, you know, you have a good thing and then you attach money to it and obviously 
Bitcoin is a monetary exchange, but uh, I see the state of uh, exchanges now from the tiny ones to even uh, the larger ones being a little, little bit sketchy. Yeah, one thing that I've kind of found over the years is that they don't scale well. Like you can have a really decent exchange with a few users and, you know, as they get bigger and bigger, they just screw up more and more. You saw that with uh, Coinbase and all of their many scandals, like hiring the black hat hackers. You've seen it with Binance and, you know, getting hacked a couple of times and having user data leaked. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, considering rolling back the chain, I mean, come on. Yeah. So, yeah, that just seems to be kind of par for the course. So, you had people arguing on and off at this point in Bitcoin talk about, you know, how Bitcoin wouldn't have value unless it was exchanged directly for goods and services as a currency versus the people who wanted it basically speculatively traded um, as a commodity, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and a novelty kind of at that point. And so then you had other people who were also just arguing that uh, like New Liberty Standard, that it should be tied mostly to production and mining costs of a Bitcoin. So DW Dollar pushed ahead despite all of that and encouraged users to try and find bugs in the test net. There were quite a few with passwords and other stuff, um, which they were able to get fixed, you know, before actually opening, uh, which is kind of a novel way of doing it. But uh, on March 16th, 2010, the exchange was open for real trades. It took about a full day. so. Around noon on March 17th, the first actual uh, trade was completed on a real exchange with a total of uh, four users having deposited funds, including DW Dollar. <laughs> so, a little hard to watch trade. Yeah, for, yeah. With four users. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, even the smallest, you know, shitcoin exchange right now would close their doors in an hour if they only had four users. <laughs> For sure. So DW processed all transactions manually and actually had an open and closed time for the market, kind of like with uh, the stock market. Um, just being one person, it was kind of a central point of failure and cash still had to be sent via PayPal. So Again, you have the issue of uh, possible chargebacks, which made people want to try to consider uh, something else. Um, on and off ramps for exchanges have been a problem from the start, and they're still kind of a problem, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you need to be able to quickly get money on and off um, as you need it until we get more adoption and people can pay in Bitcoin. I think you've seen some apps like lolly and fold make things a little easier to buy with bitcoin um but as far as uh you know it, most that you uh use today that money is being tracked and um you know you're gonna have some tax liabilities if uh if anybody digs deep enough yeah absolutely um so back then you had sites like 
Joala and PayPal, which were centralized and needed a lot of uh, AML, KYC stuff to process transactions. So like you said, you've got the privacy issue. And then also the issue of chargebacks. And then there was a site called uh, Liberty Reserve, which was founded in Costa Rica in 2006. And it was kind of an early attempt at digital currency exchange and actually stable coins. Um, gotcha. I've, I've heard of it. Uh, I guess it was a precursor. Or, yeah. Um, so some people compared the, the two ideas, but obviously uh, Bitcoin was quite a bit different with the, uh, well, I guess in the end, they were both attempts at a digital currency. So, but that right. was uh, much earlier than Bitcoin and yeah. apparently didn't do so well. No, yeah. no. I think they got shut down. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, Bitcoin was different because it was decentralized, so it didn't just have a single point of failure. It was uh, proof of work, so you actually had people mining and with a vested interest in protecting the network. Um, Liberty Reserve didn't process deposits and withdrawals themselves, so they offered US and Euro pegged currencies, basically stable coins that you could purchase via credit card or bank transfer. And they also didn't really require anything in the way of KYC or AML, but allowed users to freely exchange the digital currencies and send them to whoever they wanted, which was, you know, kind of a game changer at that point and something that we, you know, kind of all enjoy now to some extent. Um, but back then, you know, that, that had to be mind-blowing to a lot of libertarians, but also to uh, anybody trying to launder money or anything along those lines. <laughs> right. If you have a single point of failure, you're typically going to have some governments after you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why Satoshi just fucking off is the only way that Bitcoin could have worked. Um. You know, people always asking, you know, who's Satoshi? And it's like, well, <laughs> this is if we ever find out, it'll be the worst thing that happens to Bitcoin, no matter yeah. who it is. For sure. And, you know, in my mind, it wasn't just one person. It was a group of people that, you know, we should never know. That's the whole point, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Liberty uh, was wildly popular. They had about a million registered users and about 200,000 in the United States alone at the height. Liberty Reserve's founder, Arthur Budofsky, had previously ran a pretty similar exchange called Gold Age from 2002 to 2006. And they had digital currencies pegged to the various weights of gold. So you had e-gold, um, you know, years before SHIP even started shitting on Bitcoin. You already had <laughs> e-gold. But uh, so that all ended in 2006 when Arthur and his partner were indicted on charges of operating an illegal financial business, which is a felony. Uh, he only received five years of probation, at which point he immediately fled the country for Costa Rica and almost as quickly founded Liberty Reserve, which just just another way of doing what he had just done. Yeah, that tends to piss off the feds, I think. It does. Weirdly enough, it does. Uh, so 
spoiler alert, Liberty Reserve uh, would be shut down in 2013 when U.S. federal prosecutors invoked the Patriot Act after investigations by governments in 17 countries. Budovsky and six others were charged with money laundering and operating an unlicensed financial transaction company. Authorities claim that Liberty Reserve was used to launder more than six billion in criminal proceeds during its operation. Damn, son. I know, right? That's he did pretty well. I mean, before he didn't. <laughs> right. I wonder what his cut was of that of those billions. Yeah, that's that's a good question. So United States Attorney Preet Bharara, who's uh, been in the news more recently, too. Well, I'm familiar. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> uh, so Preet stated users of Liberty Reserve could contact his office to inquire about getting their funds returned, which I thought was <laughs> Sounds hilarious. Like a trap. Yeah, Sounds it's like a trap. It, it's a trap, uh, akbar.gif. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, in 2016, Badovsky was sentenced to 20 years in prison for uh, all of that. And uh, so, anyway, some attempts were made to utilize Liberty in the meantime for Bitcoin exchange, including an email-only exchange called Bitcoin FX, uh, which was probably a lot better option for PayPal until Liberty got shut down. Uh, at least you got rid of the possibility of chargebacks and all that bull crap, but still you had the central point of failure, um, which, you know, really is still probably the issue whenever it comes to stable coins. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all question whether uh, Tether's back one-to-one. I mean, we, we won't dive into that today, but it's... Uh, it's, it's hard to trust someone with that amount of money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially whenever we're conditioned to be trustless um, and for our systems to be trustless. Still, there was no adequate exchange for Bitcoin. Um, all of these had problems. Most were centralized to the point that one person could account for the entire operation. So on July 18th, 2010, a new exchange called Mount Gox was announced by a new user, uh, ironically named Mount Gox. I'll blow past the common knowledge stuff about Jed McCaleb uh, of Ripple and uh, Stellar fame originally working on it as a trading platform for Magic Gathering cards and then, you know, selling it to Mark Carpellis in 2011 and... uh, I'm just going to focus on the evolution and the issues with Mount Gox because I think they're the interesting part of the story. So Sounds good. I think people can uh, do their own research on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, just as recently as 2017, I'm sure they could have visited many Twitter feeds and heard all the bitching in the world about Mount Gox and uh, all the great history and uh, you know, death threats against Carpellis and whatever else. Right. I mean, have they settled all of the, uh, I don't know. I know that the, the, uh, the settlement was always, uh, looming for, for people. They're going to just dump all the Bitcoin. They're just going to dump all the Bitcoin. But anyway, that's, that's not what you're talking about. So, yeah, I believe they have dumped all the Bitcoin. I don't know as far as, uh, 
you know, users getting back their funds. I'm not sure how much actually ended up getting back to folks, but I do know that they uh, finally ended up dumping all the custodial funds. Gotcha. So unlike Bitcoin market, the site was always online. It was automated and it had a clean interface and dedicated hosting. So it was a big game changer in that regard. In the beginning, they charged a 2% spread between buyer and seller with both users just seeing the prices listed as the price that you would pay after that 2% spread was accounted for. So this probably created some great opportunities for arbitrage. Bitcoin market had a cool down period between market close and open and generally had better prices for buying Bitcoin uh, while Mt. Gox generally had better prices for selling. Uh, after some discussion, Mt. Gox eventually dropped their spread entirely and ran completely free, minus the PayPal charges for a while, uh, eventually picking up you know, a more normal fee model like we're used to uh, per trade. Like users were even donating to the exchange back then. Um, they made up for the first chargeback that, uh, that happened to, uh, I guess it was Jed at the time. And it was just kind of crazy to see that, uh, to see a for-profit exchange that's getting all of these donations and everything. <laughs> For sure, the early days where people weren't as sketchy. Yeah, actual uh, community feel to it. Yeah, I, so, I feel like that's going to change here shortly as we move forward in the timeline. Oh, hopefully. <laughs> so, like, between 2011 and 2013, uh, Mountain Gox was eventually handling about 70% of Bitcoin transaction volume. But they were also hit by a sort of never-ending string of exploits, hacks, scandals, and lawsuits. Uh, in 2011, Mt. Gox claims that a compromised admin user account, presumably belonging to McCaleb, was exploited to make the Bitcoin price fall from $17 to pennies in a matter of minutes. And it's kind of funny, this Bitcoin talk uh, user who went by the name of Toasty told a story of buying 259,684 Bitcoin for under $3,000 during that event. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. So uh, I guess they realized that if a full crash ever happened like that, or a flash crash like we experience a little bit more often, uh, there would likely be a ton of buy offers at a penny exactly. So he set a large order at a penny and then zero one after that and uh, had been online about within 15 minutes of the hacker. So he caught about 259,684 of them and was able to withdraw 643.2771 Bitcoin before uh, Mount God's closed withdrawals. And you know, I, would, I would assume they did that manually. I'm guessing so, yeah. And, you know, they were limiting uh, withdrawals to I think about a thousand bucks at the time, uh, unless you did further KYC or whatever. But 
I guess there were ways around that. Uh, Kevin explained in the thread that he had decided against that. And then he had also decided against um, selling the Bitcoin to crash the market again, but selling it into more of his buys. Uh, basically because he didn't want to appear as sketchy, but that sort of ends up happening anyway because he made out with uh, so much in Bitcoin. Right. Like about the time that he posted that, I think even the 643 that he got out of it with was probably worth about 10 grand. So um, a lot of other users though caught you know different low bids and were able to withdraw some of them or all of them, but you know, a lot of suspicion on Kevin. So Mount Gox was publicly claiming at the same time that the sell order and the buy order were from the same account. Uh, again, pointing the finger at uh, our friend Toasty Kevin. And so that's when Kevin posted his thread and told everyone about how he had tried messaging uh, Mark Arpelis or uh, Magical Tux as he went by on IRC only to be ignored while they issued a false statement about it. And uh, after several users kind of poked at Toasty about this and about his motives for posting the thread, he went ahead and put the 643 into an escrow account with conditions that he could either send it to the Bitcoin faucet as a donation, or, you know, if he was arrested, obviously it'd be confiscated, but they didn't have a whole lot on them anyway, or that he could get the Bitcoin back within a month from the escrow company. And I couldn't find any more posts from him concerning the escrow. He just kind of goes on back to normal uh, after this whole affair. So I'm guessing that he was able to collect the uh, 643 Bitcoin and call it a win. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, you got the market and that's not in his control. But the ethics of the whole situation kind of puts you in a tough spot. I would probably, uh, I don't know what I'd do in that situation. Maybe disappear? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, I think if you had to ask most of uh, crypto Twitter right now, hey, if you just lucked out and buy some screw up at an exchange, you've got 643 Bitcoin uh, in your personal wallet, but you give it back to the exchange or i think i think we know the answer to that one yeah but, i think uh, uh you know that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do but you know it yeah. would be uh be a tough decision with someone with uh some scruples we'll say yeah most definitely so mount gox uh however was stating publicly that they were going to reverse the transactions from around the time of the hack and this is problematic for a lot of reasons. Um, one, because it kind of broke their own terms and conditions, which at the time stated you're trading with other users of Mt. Gox. Mt. Gox does not act as a counterparty to any trades. And this was a user account that had been compromised. Um, you know, it was password. The password had been hacked and somebody had gotten into that one account and crashed the market. And so, you know, it brings up a lot of problems because then if other people get hacked in the future, are you going to reverse a ton of trades 
to help them too or you know it just it causes a lot of problems and questions for sure and then secondly a lot of users uh like toasty had been able to withdraw coins before you know they shut withdrawals and so if they reverse those trades you would essentially be creating air coins or bitcoin that didn't actually exist but instead was just entries on their own ledgers um because somebody else already had those bitcoins so if you get a run on the bank so to speak then they would collapse because they wouldn't have those bitcoins for sure i mean imagine trying to factor in all right so x amounts out so we have this amount left so each bitcoin is worth 0.67 and if you don't like it too bad yeah. that would be another option of idiocracy i guess so yeah i mean hey if you're stating that you are uh not responsible for other users money and you get involved those are the type of decisions you end up having to make and i don't think any of them are right yeah no absolutely um and you know you had a lot of people who said that uh mount gox was insolvent before mark carpellis even bought it from jeb but you know however you feel from that point on, there's a lot of these little incidents where their actual balance is being chipped away at. You know, I think they said that uh, the 2000 Bitcoin that would have uh, just ended up being, you know, air coins, like I said, they were going to make that up to reimburse those users out of Mount Gox's funds. So, you know, either they did or they didn't, but you're getting, you know, Mount Gox's funds uh, chipped away at little by little here. Oh, for so. sure. And if, uh, you know, if they're going to, I mean, obviously we, we don't know who was telling the truth, but if uh, Toasty was telling the truth and they already set, uh, set the scene with uh, not being honest. Right. Exactly. So near the end of June, uh, Arpelis released a statement regarding the breach and additionally telling everybody that users' hashed passwords had been compromised. Um, this is kind of funny, kind of sad. Since I had read through, you know, the whole thread where Mount Gox was uh, created and announced and everything, people had been complaining about the issue of uh, password hashing and, you know, how safe it was, how safe it wasn't, uh, salting this, salting that, um, pretty much since day one. <laughs> and so it was never fixed under Jed and it definitely wasn't fixed under Mark. And so now you had all of these users whose uh, hash passwords have been compromised, which also potentially compromised other accounts that they might use the same password on. Uh, you know, he talked about working closely with Google to go ahead and help lock those accounts for users and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but anyway, huge fuck up uh, on the back of uh, the market being crashed. Uh, he kind of 
takes a passive aggressive uh, stab at a Caleb being like, oh, I mean, some people may say it's the uh, old owner's fault that this was all fucked up. But anyway, we're just going to say what we're going to be doing moving forward and uh, the steps that we're taking because we're going to have another event in the future and we need to have uh, security and procedures in place to not make it this big of a problem. And so how well do you think that those uh, security procedures were worked? Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I'm kind of cheating, but I don't think very well. You're correct, sir. Um, <laughs> it wasn't enough. Just, you know, this was all in June. In October 2011, some two dozen transactions appeared in the blockchain and sent Bitcoin to invalid addresses to the tune of 2609 Bitcoin. And this was all coming from Gox uh, wallets. And without the ability to ever assign a private key to these addresses. Uh, so they, basically burnt? Yeah, burnt? yeah, they were burnt. Posted? <laughs> It was uh, one of the earlier coin burns, so. Well, you know, for us, that's good, you know, it increases the value. Right, I mean, someday somebody's going to go through all of this and figure out exactly how many Bitcoin, or at least precisely how many, you know, are never going anywhere. And I think we'll all be surprised at what the actual supply is. Yeah, for sure, I mean. I myself have lost a few to, uh, we'll just say, uh, mental decline. Yeah, and um, uh, not a few Bitcoin, mind you, but <laughs> a, a few, a few fractions of a Bitcoin. Oh, I was gonna say, um, like that may be as bad as Evernote and boating trips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was more like Cush uh, and maybe booze, but still, <laughs> but still, yeah. yeah. It always hurts a little bit, but yeah, it, you, learn, it all, you learn from those mistakes. It all hurts. All right, so they changed uh, from PayPal to Juala because I guess the cost was quite a bit less. And they thought it'd be a little bit better in terms of not having to worry about the uh, chargebacks. So in February 2012, a bunch of account Walla accounts were restricted because of new AML and KYC guidelines. And, uh, you know, this obviously fucked a lot of users, but luckily it was temporary. Uh, in May 2013, oh God, <laughs> sorry, I just burped. That's all right. I was still thinking about know your customer. It always seems that somebody pops up and uh, they're lax on that for a while until they have to uh, start kicking it in and then people move to the next guy who's lax on it and the cycle continues. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I like my shady exchanges uh, as well as the next guy, but you always got to watch out for them. I mean, you can't... Uh leave things sitting there for sure. Oh um, no. So in May 2013, CoinLab filed a lawsuit against Mt. Gox for breach of contract. 
they were basically supposed to get Mount Gox's U.S. customers following all these uh, AML KYC issues, and that never occurred. And so about two weeks after they filed that lawsuit, Mount Gox's uh, exchange wallet account was frozen by uh, Homeland Security using the uh, Patriot Act for operating as an unlicensed money transmitter. Uh, the old Patriot Act strikes again. Yep. I mean, same thing that, uh, same thing that shuttered Liberty Reserve. So yeah, if you're a threat to the U.S. government or the economy, then you're kind of fucked if they can reach you. For sure. And as we move forward in time, more and more of our privacy rights are stripped from us and we give them away for convenience. Absolutely. So June, uh, Mount Gox received their license from Vincent and the matter was resolved, which is kind of surprising that it moved so quickly. He had to be uh, greasing the right wheels for sure. Right. Or somebody, uh, somebody important had some money on there they wanted out. Yeah. So, on, <laughs> so no, you're okay. Uh, so on August 5th, Mount Gox stated that they had incurred significant losses due to crediting deposits, which had not fully cleared, and that new deposits would no longer be credited until the funds transferred were fully completed. I got to wait for the uh, confirmations, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's uh, Jwala, I guess. Um, That's right. No double spins, man. No, sir. And so they issue a press release on February 10th, 2014, stating that the issue was due to transaction malleability. They said, a bug in the Bitcoin software makes it possible for someone to use the Bitcoin network to alter transaction details to make it seem like sending of Bitcoins to a Bitcoin wallet did not occur when in fact it did occur. Since the transaction appears as if, as if it has not proceeded correctly, the Bitcoins may be resent. Mount Gox is working with the Bitcoin Core development team and others to mitigate this issue. Which sounds like uh, so much horseshit, but Mark Carpellis was on uh, board of the Bitcoin Foundation at this point, and he was also hosting uh, the Bitcoin Talk Forum. Something uh, I may have to dive into in another episode, but apparently something awful had been DDoSing Bitcoin talk and uh, putting up, you know, shitty jokes and memes and everything and harassing the people there. So they moved uh, servers and uh, ended up getting hosting, you know, through Mark Carpellis at this point because he was, you know, on the board, and he was a pretty big guy in the space at the time. Luckily, things like that don't happen anymore. No, never. Um, <laughs> you don't have to worry about DDoSing or scams. That's right. Wait, so, wait, wait. Maybe some new people. Maybe some new people are listening. Yes, yes, you do. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm sure that if they're listening to us, they they probably know that already. I would hope so. So sarcasm tag is implied. Um, <laughs> They never would mitigate that issue. Like you mentioned at the start, uh, Roger Burr released this video implying that Mount Gox was basically fine, or uh, as he said, liquid, which he later apologized for and recanted. 
Oh, oh man, I can see him sitting in that chair in their office right now. Ugh. Yeah. No offense, no offense, Roger, but you either knew that that was bullshit or you trusted the wrong people. And I, I think uh, either way, we we know that we don't trust. Absolutely, and I mean. You know, I, I intend all offense. Fuck yourself, Roger. But <laughs> that aside, by February of 2014, a supposed leaked internal document claimed that the company was insolvent and that it had lost 744,408 bitcoins in a theft which went undetected for years. <laughs> and yeah, and that was, uh, you know, the precursor to all the stuff we kind of already know with the lawsuits, the civil proceedings, uh, some eventual recovery of funds by some users and the gradual crashing of the Bitcoin price and then disbursement of those funds uh, whenever the custodial whale started selling off. Oh, those were fun times. Absolutely. And just, yes, just, just yesterday. Yeah. And so it uh, starts coming out uh, during all of the stuff with uh, Carpellis, the lawsuits, the trials, and everything, that they had this uh, willy bot, which was basically trying to make trades to their benefit to keep Mount Gox afloat. Uh, and so a lot of people got pissed off about that, about you know the exchange trading against them in order to sustain itself in addition to fees. Uh, For sure. Sounds like it would have taken them uh, a couple of centuries to, to make that amount of Bitcoin back if, if that's what their, their goal was. Yeah, especially whenever it's going through all of these uh, par parabolic periods and everything where it's just dramatically more than when it was lost. Um, I mean, I can't imagine that's that's a money pit that you're never going to dig your way out of because Bitcoin is worth more in a week uh, than it was a week ago a lot of these times. And so even if you get a few more Bitcoin or whatever, it's still outpacing everything that you're able to do. For sure. And uh, another fun fact, um, I guess Carpellis was willing to out the... Uh, Dread Pirate Roberts of the Silk Road during his uh, whole investigation when all that was going on. So he's he's a real piece of shit. He's back on Twitter now, and so I should probably rein that in. But no, fuck you. Um, yeah, real, from from what I remember, he uh, he tried to to uh, I guess make it seem like he didn't know what was going on and that he was a victim. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, which seems just pretty unlikely. Yeah. No, I'm not a fan from what I've gleaned uh, about him so far. Yeah. But I mean, Silk Road, Silk Road is what it is. Uh, you know, I have no problem with it. I think that it reduced harm for people who use drugs, and it was a great experiment. And uh, it's uh, sad to see people turning on. Uh, I don't know. From where where I'm sitting, you don't you don't wrap people out. Yeah. 
No, Ross definitely got the uh, raw end of that deal, but that's that's definitely uh, something for another episode, probably. Um, for sure, for sure. Just following the money, the a lot of the funds were traced to another exchange, uh, BTCE, including what turned out to be about four hundred million from Mt. Gox. Um, BTCE was kind of unlike most exchanges at this point because they didn't do AMC or AML or KYC. And so, uh, you know, they pretty much just let you on and you could do whatever the hell. Uh, and so a lot of scammers, a lot of uh, fishers, uh, money launderers and hackers, you know, were sort of kind of traced to BTCE in uh, one regard or another, moving their money through there on the way out. Uh, you know, maybe the best place for cashing out uh, hacked funds from other exchanges. And so anyway, uh, this, of course, was what pushed Mt. Gox into bankruptcy. So three years after Mt. Gox collapses, uh, on July 24th, 2017, uh, our old pal that I mentioned at the start, Mr. Alexander Vinnick, was arrested on a... Oh, hold on. Alexander Vinnick was arrested on a beach in Greece where he was vacationing with his family. When he was taken into custody by U.S. agents, Vinick, who was charged with 21 counts of money laundering and other related charges, was logged uh, on to his BTCE account on a cell phone. So, now, uh, now I'm remembering. I remember that story. Uh, yeah. The, the name was not ringing a bell, but uh, I think they tied him to laundering money for the Silk Road as well as others, right? Well, that's where it gets interesting. Not only uh, the Silk Road, but it ties into some other uh, criminal and, um, well, I'll, I'll save that. You're going to enjoy that part. So, <laughs> according to the U.S. Justice, Justice Department, Vinick, who was 39 at the time, was allegedly the mastermind behind an international money laundering scheme. It had processed over $4 billion in cryptocurrency transactions, including Mt. Gox's stolen Bitcoins. So after his arrest and the unsealing of the U.S. extradition order, Russia filed a court order in Greece seeking to have him return to Russia, purportedly to face charges in a case of small-scale fraud. France later filed its own extradition order, and... Uh, he was moved to France and uh, elsewhere. I don't think Russia ever did get him back. Um, sorry, Vlad. <laughs> right. Seems like uh, the U.S. usually ends up winning those kind of uh, trades, if you will. But two years after his arrest, on July 25th, 2019, U.S. prosecutors filed another complaint against Fennec and BTCE, moving to seize about 100 million frozen BTCE accounts for alleged violations of U.S. banking laws. About the same time, um, his partner was moving to create another exchange, pretty much just like BTCE, and to reimburse 
users for the frozen account funds uh, using their own tokens. Um, and we'll meet up with that part of the story in just a minute. But that's this is all going on kind of at the same time. Yeah, that sounds. Uh, there's some red flags going off uh, when you're trying to mark frozen funds with the, your own token. But I, I guess we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, it's. Oh God, I just imagine if Cryptopia had tried something like that. But... <laughs> Still waiting for that Grant guy to give me my my my, my money. Yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll read an article from time to time, but uh, I'm not. I'm not. I've I've counted that money gone. Yeah, no, that's a good thing to do. Um. So July of 2017, a group of enthusiasts with uh, WizSec released their findings related to the Mt. Gox hack, and CoinDesk reported it as at roughly six o'clock. PM UTC with WizSec released a report which stressed that at this time there's nothing to definitively connect Vinick or a related alias to the theft of funds from Mount Gox, but rather the connection is with the subsequent laundering of that money. In the interview, the firm said its newly published work was not timed to coincide with the news events about Vinick's arrest and uh, BTCE being frozen. Uh, but rather it was inspired by it. WizSec told Coindesk that the news today rather added a missing piece to its investigation, namely the connection between the Mt. Gox heist and BTCE. Instead, its focus was on tracing stolen Mt. Gox coins across the blockchain to a network of wallets they had long known were involved in money laundering. Notably, this network of wallets was also found to have contained coins connected to a hack on Mt. Gox in 2011, as well as a hack on an exchange called Bitcoinica in 2012. Those accounts, according to the researchers, could be tied to an online account, WME, on Bitcoin Talk, which the firm identified as being owned by a person named Alexander Finnick prior to today's developments. The finding allowed WizSec to add new context to another clue, the fact that some of the coins connected to the thefts seem to go through a unique avenue within BTCE's public wallet architecture. According to the firm, some coins went directly to what they believe was a second tier wallet and irregularity that wasn't previously explored. The finding, coupled with Vinick's alleged connection to the exchange, prompted the firm to pin the blog post. The funny thing about WME is that they were a Bitcoin talk user who in their history uh, had, you know, quite a bit of uh, conversations on there, but also they had posted this thread where they were issuing complaints about crypto exchange uh, being a scam. I don't know that I'd ever really heard of this place, but it's crypto, the letter X, and then change. Uh, just like to chime in and say... You know, if you're going to start your own exchange, be a little more creative, folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, most least, Cryptopia was, uh, you know, was was at least, you know, you could call it Craptopia because of all the shit coins you could get there. But uh, it's not very creative with these names. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
I mean, everything since uh, that Bitcoin market has pretty much been shit. But, uh, and if, if any of you exchanges want to rebrand as something that doesn't suck, I will help you for money. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so WME posted numerous screens uh, showing conversations between himself and crypto exchange staff and demanding his uh, clean money. And then he further fucked himself by showing a letter from a lawyer and he didn't redact his real name on the letter from the lawyer. And it was Alexander Vanek, of course. (laughs) And demanding that his funds be released. In the meantime, uh, like I had mentioned, we've got this going on. Within days after BTCE was seized, a new Russian-based cryptocurrency exchange appeared spearheaded uh, by one of Vinick's partners at BTCE, Bill Yuchinko, another man who is a frequent tra- trader of cur- currency on BTCE, Dmitry Vasilyev, was also involved. Like BTCE, the exchange called WEX saw hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions of digital currencies. Months after its founding in early 2018, the exchange collapsed amid the disappearance, according to the BBC Russian service, of some 400 million in cryptocurrency. Russian users of WEX were unable to access their holdings uh, and filed police complaints with Russian law enforcement. Why Sherpa, are, the- Sherpa, are we going to be uh, are we going to be erased after this episode? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that we'll just disappear, but there is the chance of someone nudging you with a polonium-tipped cane. Um, Come on, that's not a good way to go out. (laughs) No, but, you know, it's the Russian way, so... uh, Drink some vodka, perestroika, whatever they say over there. Um, We're fucked. I've got my jar of pickles ready. (laughs) Prior to Wex's collapse... Bilyachenko and Vasilyev had sought out investors and patrons who helped stabilize the exchange and provide some protection from uh, Russian security agencies, a common business practice known as a roof. Among those contacted by Bilyachenko and Vasilyev, according to the BBC, were Konstantin Malofiev, a wealthy Russian businessman known for his ties to the Kremlin and his advocacy of conservative and nationalist causes. Um, the United States had imposed financial sanctions on Malofiev in 2014 for his support of Russia-backed separatists fighting in eastern Ukraine during the uh, Russian incursion. Bilyachenko later testified to police investigators that around the time negotiations with Malofiev were ongoing, he had been contacted by officials from Russia's main domestic spy agency, the Federal Security Service, or FSB. Like our uh, FEC? Or SEC, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, something along the lines of CIA. Uh, it's uh, not the people you want to be <laughs> contacted by, probably. Gotcha, gotcha. So... In April 2018, Bilyachenko testified that a man named Anton demanded that he turn over encrypted WEX assets 
and the man said that the cryptocurrency would go to the accounts of the FSB of Russia. Belyuchenko later said he was held in jail until he agreed to transfer $450 million in cryptocurrency. Um, the BBC also published a recording of a phone conversation purportedly between Belyuchenko and Malofiev in the summer of 2018. In the recording, a man identified as Malofiev accuses Belyuchenko of not transferring some of those funds. There is a great suspicion among all participants in the process that you have more money than you put on the exchange. The fact that you were tied to BTCE is obvious, but on BTCE, it was much more than it turned out on WEX, the man can be heard saying. You are kept afloat because I say that you are mine and I am responsible for you. That's that's a scary statement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine sitting in a Russian jail until they break you to uh, make that transfer, yeah. let alone being owned by some other sketchy... Uh, Russian autocrat. <laughs> so neither Vasilyev's or Bilyachenko's whereabouts could be uh, immediately determined uh, after that. Um, according to the BBC, in late 2018, Vasilyev sold his interest in WEX to a man as prominent among Russia-backed militias fighting in eastern Ukraine. Vasilyev was arrested in Italy in June of 2019, though he was released the same month. And basically, the FSB connection wasn't really the uh, only one that involved Russia. Are you aware of the uh, hacking group Fancy Bear? I have heard of them for sure. Well, they were mentioned in the uh, Mueller report as being responsible for the uh, DNC hack um, and several others, you know, French television. They hacked the uh, Olympic yeah, Committee. Basically a proxy, as I understand it, a proxy group of the, uh, uh, the Russian government. Yeah. A, a subcontractor, yeah. if you will. That's, that's how I see them, but I'm... I could be wrong. Basically, it's um, a, they're believed to be two un, units of the uh, Russian military intelligence agency, the GRU. Their funds were tracked to BTCE and then, of course, also to uh, WEX. And they were using these to launder the funds and uh, make money for purchases for equipment needed you know computers and what have you for the various hacks that they were pulling off same time you have all of these connections between uh wex specifically and you know with the most proof but also between btce uh you have uh president putin trying to get Benick extradited there on lesser charges, uh, which Benick repeatedly lobbied for. He tried his hardest to get <laughs> extradited back to Russia, so he wasn't worried at all about uh, that being a problem. No, no, that was his get out of uh, get out of the states free card, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so, you know, the U.S. had all of the uh, servers and everything from BTCE. So they had an awful lot of proof of what went on there and could, you know, track the blockchain transactions, of course. Uh, Wait, they're not, they're, not, they're not private? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I was being a shithead. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sir. Uh, they weren't. They weren't using Monero, unfortunately. Wait, wait. wait. That, it's a public ledger. <laughs> I'm confused. Right. So they had the database, you know, to tie it to all these different user accounts, and um, also the ability to see where the IPs were, and then associate those with uh, addresses on the blockchain. So that's how. Mueller eventually tied uh, Fancy Bear, you know, extensively to BTCE and uh, all of these wallets. And basically the best conclusion that I could come up to after reading all of the different pages upon pages of reports is that Alexander Vinnick kind of orchestrated several of these hacks. Um, BTCE wasn't much of an exchange at all uh whenever you know he started it and it had very low volume compared to Mount Gox and the couple of other exchanges that there were. But the uh the Bitcoin taken from Mount Gox uh ended up on BTCE, is that correct? Yes sir. They uh they went there and from several of the other hacks and so it almost feels like some of these were orchestrated uh, in an attempt to A, take down the competition, but then B, also increase their volume because you've got those coins flowing through there because they don't have KYC and AML to worry about. Um, right. Or either they don't worry about them, rather. <laughs> <laughs> By design, I would assume. Yeah. Um, so. You know, you're wondering if Vinick's ever going to name names. I'm not sure that he ever will. He's looking at a 20 year sentence, but a gunshot to the back of the head suicide. Uh, if he right. says anything. Let's I, see here. So how much money are we talking or how many Bitcoin? I guess I guess the people listening would prefer to hear in Bitcoin. Are we talking. Uh, couple hundred thousand yeah i mean over the course of the whole thing um because he he did this over time like it what was amazing to me reading about it was that this wallet was apparently compromised for a long time over at mount gox and they would take out most of what was in there and then users would be depositing more funds because it was a hot wallet and then they would take some of those out <laughs> you know he talked about oh well you know this uh this went uh unreported for years and you know figuring out the uh, gears <laughs> <laughs> right yeah i mean you know once or twice but seems like you'd uh you'd notice if someone was siphoning funds from you for years yeah but you know i guess if you feel like you got the money coming in and you were uh yeah never mind sounds like uh, 
probably pretty obvious. Yeah, and they had lost uh, 744,408 Bitcoins just in that one hack. Um, and, you know, probably a significant amount otherwise um, at different points. They were really screwy about some stuff. Like, I saw IRC logs of uh, Magical Tux, who was Carpellus, um, just kind of trying to prove that they were still solvent. And so uh, he had transferred like 444,000 Bitcoin to one wallet to prove it. And then uh, another user was like, oh, we'll transfer it to this other wallet for, you know, 4242.42, something like that. And uh, so he's like, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the things that people noticed, they kind of broke it apart on Bitcoin talk and had a CSI kind of blockchain forensics uh, amateur team figuring stuff out. And they found this old wallet that he was using to transfer some of these that still held funds, which I think is where the uh, 90,000 or so Bitcoins that uh, ended up being able to go back to uh, users eventually came from. Gotcha. But yeah, do people do people still use IRC? I've oh, never yeah. heard it. I'm, I'm, I'll admit that. Uh, I've read about it. I think that was almost the more popular than Bitcoin Talk um, for quite some time, but I've never never fired it up, if you will. Yeah, I've never really used it for uh, Bitcoin or crypto-related stuff, but I mean, I've been on IRC for ages, and it's definitely past its glory days. Um, so you have so many pro programs like uh, Discord that have just kind of taken IRC and made it a lot more user-friendly and a uh, lot less issues, a lot less uh, revealing of certain details and otherwise. I mean, gotcha. you know, unless you took certain steps, then your IP was visible whenever you were on IRC in a channel. So, Well, as old as I am, I've probably been on it. I didn't even realize it. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, IRC is an interesting place. Uh, I was on there getting, you know, free movies, games, and all that crap before Napster even popped up because that's where you went for it. And, uh, you know, it was it was the Wild West. So it's, it's very much like our space. You know, you have these um, groundbreaking uh, paradigm-shifting technologies like internet relay chat and uh BitTorrent and then bitcoin that you know just explode and then they go through you know 10 15 years of absolute craziness before kind of settling down a little bit right but then they're not as much fun right yeah they some of them can get boring but then they also uh the ones that are left after the Wild West period are significantly safer. They've learned their lessons. <laughs> For sure. So that's basically the whole story. Um, 
this is why I'd asked a question on Twitter the other day, wondering just how many, you know, three-letter agencies were using crypto or Bitcoin or now privacy coins in order to fund, you know, black ops kind of operations or. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like the way to go. Flying a cargo plane with hundreds of millions of dollars on it doesn't seem very realistic anymore. I mean, I think we still see crazy things happening with exchanges. I mean, I'm sure there's some interesting stories between, say, Bittrex and Upbit or, you know, my, my new favorite shitcoin exchange, Trade Ogre. I mean, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but with the amount of uh, money at stake and the amount of uh, people who do not know what they're doing, I'm sure there's some, some news stories developing that people will be talking about in 20 years from now. Yeah, most definitely. And I mean, there's, there's a couple of other just crazy bits of this story, but I mean, they're just kind of uh, on the periphery and everything. Uh, Vinick apparently had a hit out on him while he was in Greek prison and then uh, went on a hunger strike. Uh, Russia tried to get him out due to the hunger strike and uh, his holding in Greece exceeding the uh, legal limit. There was a lot of other crazy stuff um, related to that. And then, you know, him getting uh, sent over to France and the whole tug of war between the U.S. and Russia. Oh, yeah, on, I'm sure. sure they sent detention. him. sure they sent him to France after his time ran out in Greece so that the U.S. could get their their ducks in a row to get him here as opposed to letting him go. Yeah. Spend, then, uh, spend some time in Russian jail, which I would assume is way worse than American jail, but uh, a much shorter time period. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, if you're him, uh, you're, you're hoping for Russia because it sounds like he has contacts and it sounds like they're kind of on his side. Like, you wonder... You know, if the rumors about there being uh, assassination plots wasn't maybe orchestrated by them, at the same time, they're placing Vinick uh, on the international wanted list so they have a stronger case for extraditing him. And then, you know, he does the whole hunger strike thing. And uh, Russia, being such a huge proponent of human rights, um, petitions international bodies to get them out of there <laughs> oh man i mean we're not so innocent ourselves but i, I would i would say that they're, they've got a worse track record yeah yeah they definitely uh they they've had some issues <laughs> <laughs> i just uh i thought that this was a real interesting story i mean you know a lot about mount Knox, but i think um the Russian ties and the possibly orchestrated hacking and, you know, tying all of that in with our political elections and other nations' political elections through uh, Fancy Bear's various hacks. Yeah, I mean, we all kind of know the surface story of Mount Gox and we all 
have our opinions on it, but when you dig deeper, uh, all sorts of, I don't want to say filth, but uh, sketchiness, we'll call it sketchiness, uh, is exposed. But yeah. that kind of happens whenever uh, large sums of money are being moved around or laundered or all of the above. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been talking about uh, WAX and that whole exchange. Uh, in June 2020, it looks like New Zealand police announced the seizure of $90 million from WME Capital Management, a company in New Zealand registered to Vinic. So that again ties into the WME handle on what, um, what? Bitcoin Talk. What year was that? That was uh, just this year uh, in June. Hmm. Where was Craptopia based out of? Uh, New Zealand. I want my money. <laughs> no, I'm sure some of those some of those coins probably don't even exist anymore. No, but I was making a, I was making a killing there, man. I was making a killing. Oh, I think everybody was. I I didn't trade there much. I just had too many issues a couple of times. I did. In the start, uh, and I was like, "Yeah, too many red flags. Fuck this." <laughs> I uh, I would sit there and wait for for my uh, bids to fill, and uh, look at their weird online market that was. Uh, I mean, I was amazed that anybody ever used it. <laughs> There's some inter interesting things on there. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt. But you know, with any luck. They're much like, uh, much like the exchanges listed in our story today, and maybe you sponsored a Russian hacking attempt of uh, Danish elections or something like that. Maybe, maybe some good came out. I don't know. What? Possibly, <laughs> probably those damn Danes. <laughs> maybe mean... some bad came out. But <laughs> something happened. Somebody's spending that money right now. Well, that so, was a great, great story, Sherpa. I'm sure you spent a lot of time looking through and sifting and finding the the gems. Absolutely, I'm, man. I'm sure it wasn't all in just uh, one article. That's for sure. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, so, any final thoughts on uh, on the craziness, the collective? Um, don't leave your money on exchanges. Um, That'd be my main takeaway. Don't leave any <laughs> cryptocurrencies on exchanges. Keep them in your own personal wallet. Uh, try not to fund, you know, uh, black ops. And, uh, <laughs> if you can get your money off without uh, doing a KYC, why the hell not? Amen to that. Words live, my brother. I appreciate you coming on. Oh no worries, no worries. You know, you did you you popped my podcast uh, cherry, so hopefully I wasn't too boring for your listeners. No, absolutely, and hopefully this uh, this leaves you wanting more. Maybe you'll maybe you'll start making the rounds, sir. I think I'll just keep making uh, non fungible token art and hiding out, being a burger. But uh, for you, my friend, I'll, I'll jump on from time to time. It was uh, it was fun. And I learned some stuff. I hope your listeners did as well. Me too. You have a good night, buddy.